Welcome to Hollowed Ground Storycast. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya, and this episode is about the story that inspired me to make my career studying the spread of infectious diseases, a book and movie adaptation called And the Band Played On. Okay, but what do you think, what do you know, and what can you prove? So for those of you who haven't had a chance to read the book or watch the movie yet, the story follows the early unfolding of the AIDS epidemic in the U.S. through the eyes of the epidemiologists, virologists, and community organizers that are on the front lines. The movie focuses mainly on San Francisco, while the book's focus is more split between New York City and San Francisco. And so just a little bit about the production history. Uh, The book is by Randy Schultz, and it was published in 1987. He was a journalist for the San Francisco Chronicle, and he was actually the only dedicated gay issues reporter at a major newspaper um, in 1982 when he was hired and as the early epidemic unfolded. And so this book really sort of grew out of all of the painstaking research that he did covering the epidemic for the San Francisco Chronicle, and he felt that it needed to be published as a book. I don't think this book ever won any special awards. You know, this it's this huge, frustrating work of journalism, and, and it didn't get the recognition that it deserved in its own time. And it's had a good legacy. You know, the, you saw the movie in school and we even heard from one person who said they watched the movie in their high school health class. It's had a legacy in that way of, of educating people, which I think was what Schultz wanted. But, you know, ironically, because it's so much of the book is about how the media just didn't care. You know, the literary institutions, that would have given awards for this kind of thing just didn't care. It doesn't have a Pulitzer or anything like that. The movie, which is a made-for-TV movie produced by HBO, came out in 1993. It has a really star-studded cast. Ian McKellen, Lily Tomlin, Alan Alda, Matthew Modine, uh, with cameos by Richard Gere, Steve Martin, Angelica Huston, Phil Collins, uh, and many more. So what came first for you? Was it the book or the movie? So we actually watched this movie in my high school biology class during our unit on HIV. It was really cool that our high school biology class even set aside a whole unit just to study the biology of this virus. At the time that we watched the movie, I already knew that I wanted to be a biologist, but I hadn't sort of like picked anything more specific than that. Mm-hmm. And basically, as we watched this movie, I was sort of like, okay, this, like, this is what I want to do. Um <laughs> I think the movie does a good job of really showing that, like, this is important and also that it's just really complicated in a super interesting way, right? Because infectious diseases, particularly in humans, is like the intersection of science with society and all of these social issues in a way that makes it really interesting. And also, of course, incredibly tragic. Yeah. I actually read the book for the first time in preparation for this podcast, um, I actually, oh, wow. <laughs> I bought the book, <laughs> I bought the book, I think maybe like five or six years ago. Um, I like <laughs> saw it at a used bookstore and picked it up. And then of course, uh, yeah, I just never really got around to reading it, but I really enjoyed it this time. It has a lot more detail than the movie. Obviously you can fit a lot more into 800 pages than you can into two and a half hours. Yeah. And I guess... I'll also just say that as far as like my experience 
with the AIDS epidemic, I'm not that old. Like, I was not born for most of the events that take place in this book. But growing up, I went to a LGBT welcoming church in the early 90s. Oh, wow. And I remember as a kid, not necessarily, like, going to a lot of funerals, but just, like, a lot of memorial services and, like, announcements for memorial services being around. I mean, it was like a pretty big part of what was happening in our church community at the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember like not really understanding it and my mom trying to explain to me what HIV and AIDS were and like why all of these young men in their 30s were dying in our community. Wow, that would have been pretty um, confusing and painful. Yeah, I was like five or six at the time and I just like... Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, and it's not something that I think I even would have remembered if it hadn't been for watching the movie. I think I'm a little bit older than you, and the sexual education curriculum when I was growing up uh, started like in the sixth grade and then kind of continued uh, until high school. But a lot of it was focused at the time, because this was like the 80s when I was a kid, on the late eighties that is on AIDS and sexually transmitted diseases and not so much on pregnancy and stuff like that. It seemed like the the urgency and the reason that we were learning about it was because of AIDS. And I wonder if that was true for you. Like you said, you learned this in biology, if it was true in like your health classes or what that was like. I don't really remember all of our sex ed curriculum being focused on AIDS. I mean, it was, we definitely learned about AIDS and it was definitely really clear that like AIDS was the most serious disease that you could get. But I would say it was probably like focused equally on preventing pregnancy and on preventing STDs. And there was a lot of emphasis given to like all of the STDs. Mm hmm. Not a focus. So that probably is, yeah. yeah, that probably is a generational difference between us. Yeah. I have two small children and I've kind of asked around, like, what's the sex ed curriculum going to be like? And it seems like it's almost non-existent. And that could be just the conservative culture of where I live. But it seems to me like there was a fever pitch time in health class and sex ed around this crisis and that slowly it has gotten more and more casual with sexual education uh, since that time. So it's weird. Yeah. Uh, So what was your experience with the story? So I read, well, I listened to the audiobook version on Audible, uh, which had some cool extras at the end too. And I did that like a few months ago, but I still remembered it really well. I just watched the movie this past week. The movie made it easier to follow all of the characters because it was really hard day after day to be like, okay, wait a minute. is this guy a French scientist or an American scientist? Is this one of the journalists or is this one of the politicians? Like there is a lot of people in that book. And sometimes I'd have to scan it backwards to catch up on who was who and what was what. Oh yeah, that totally makes sense. And because I was going off of a, a print version of the book, 
there's actually a section at the beginning of the dramatis personae and it's like two full pages of <laughs> of people and i definitely kept that bookmarked and was like flipping back to it as i was reading even having seen the movie like four or five times it's like a glossary of all the people in the book right <laughs> it's yeah. like you need it because it's crazy but the movie makes it so much easier because you're like oh this is okay matthew modine you know is very upset that he can't get his funding all right i know who this is and then Ian McKellen is yeah. the, yeah. So that was easier to do. And I wish that I had done it in the opposite order that I had watched the movie and then read the book, because I think it would have been a little bit easier to kind of like have, you know, people in my head helping me follow it. Mm-hmm. It was interesting though, because like, I don't read a lot of journalistic nonfiction like this. Um, so I was trying to kind of grapple with it and figure out how to think of the book. And it made me think of a novel called 70s by Neil Stevenson uh, just in the way that it was structured like I looked into that and I was like I wonder if he was influenced by this book or if this book influenced like science fiction in general like around because that book is about a disaster that unfolds in the, the way that the science tries to catch up with the disaster and then cope with it and it it feels a lot like this book Oh, interesting. But it's they're not related um, directly, but they are both related to another book, a science fiction book called The Andromeda Strain by Michael Crichton, which is structured the same and influenced the structure of And the Band Played On. And th- that book is about a virus from outer space that comes back with astronauts uh, accidentally and then starts to infect people and the scientists have to, I mean, it's, it's basically like kind of the same story. The scientists have to figure out how to deal with that situation. And it follows like the politics and the science and the social ramifications and all that stuff. So it was a really good schema for um, the writer of the book to use to, you know, do his nonfiction uh, journalism story because really if you think about it this is a huge pile of information and it's really yeah. difficult to give it a structure but he did a great job that book is really compelling in my opinion yeah I I definitely agree I, I really loved in the movie my favorite thing about it was the visual contrast that you get between the three laboratories where you're at the CDC and like everything is falling apart, you know, like things are in separate rooms to, you know, <laughs> operate the equipment and stuff to do the experiments they need to do. And then in the Pasteur mm-hmm. Institute, like everything is like really high tech and works really nicely. And it clearly has money is the difference. And then yeah. in uh, Dr. Gallo's lab, like that place seems like the richest place out of all of them, the most privileged and, and uh, it just tells you something mm-hmm. right off the bat about everybody's situation. I love that. That's a really good point. I actually hadn't thought too much about the visual contrast between the facilities and the movie. That's actually one of my favorite things about the book is that it goes way more in depth into the relationships between these sort of like three main scientific institutions and the ways in which they're kind of like at war and competing with mm-hmm. each other. One of my other favorite things uh, that the book is able to do that the movie isn't is sort of like drawing a contrast between the gay community in San Francisco and New York at the same time. Oh, yeah. Which is something that I didn't realize, but 
totally makes sense based on reading the book that in New York, there are a lot of gay people in really powerful positions who didn't want to risk their place sort of like in Wall Street or in the entertainment industry. Like there was a gay community, but it was much more a sort of like secret closeted like weekend gay community Mm -hmm. that Monday through Friday was like still passing for straight. Yep. Versus San Francisco, how that sort of like very subtly affected the way that the epidemic unfolded in both of those places. Definitely. And how how much political pressure was brought to bear in San Francisco versus New York as well. Because some people just yeah. weren't willing to speak up because they, they would identify themselves. And it's so weird, right? The biology of it, I feel like, relies on the civilization in a way. How so? What do you mean by that? Like, it might seem to some people that it's uncivilized to to treat some people as subhuman, you know, because um, of their sexual preference. But in my mind, that's like a very civilized thing to do. Like, once we can all eat and, you know, and don't have to worry about um, running away from predators and stuff like that, then we can start choosing like, oh, you're the poor people, we're the rich people we're the privileged people, you're the not, you're the slaves, you know, whatever it may be. And because the gay community was vulnerable to being ignored, this could ravage their community and it just didn't matter. It was allowed to grow because the wider society had chosen that they were subhuman. Yeah. It's just so weird. Like 10,000 years ago, I feel like AIDS would have unfolded very, very differently. Yeah. It's with the airplanes and with the society and the way that everything is that it was able to explode and incubate and cross-contaminate, you know, with like the blood transfusions and like you needed society for this virus to be successful, I guess is what I mean. Modern society. So I think there are really like three main themes that I want to talk about, but they all kind of are interlocking and it's kind of hard to talk about them all separately. So um, I guess maybe I'll just put them all out on the table and then we can sort of work our way through them. So the first core theme, which I think is like really the message that Randy Schultz was trying to get across in the book is basically that this was not inevitable. This is something that we did. The quote from the prologue that really captures this is... The bitter truth was that AIDS did not just happen to America. It was allowed to happen by an array of institutions, all of which failed to perform their appropriate tasks to safeguard the public health. This failure of the system leaves a legacy of unnecessary suffering that will haunt the Western world for decades to come. Which is just, like, (laughs) so true. (laughs) Knowing, like, what we're dealing with today and what the 90s and early 2000s were like. And then the second theme is the idea of how we deal with uncertainty and the murky nature of the truth, um, particularly like in the moment versus looking back in hindsight and the, the different kinds of narratives that we can tell ourselves and other people when there's conflicting interests and we don't have a good idea of the real facts and the truth. And then the third theme, of course, is like homophobia and the power of shame. And like you were just saying, compartmentalizing society and choosing who can have power and who can't. 
um, right. and who has humanity and dignity and who doesn't. And I guess I'll just start by by referencing a conversation that I had with other blue girl on Twitter about how like the primary reaction that I think most people have to this text and that you probably should have to this text is just like rage. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like particularly at Reagan and the executive branch of the federal government at this time, being the age that I am, I sort of grew up knowing not that much about Reagan, that he was basically like cut a bunch of taxes and stopped paying for a bunch of social services. And like his whole goal was to sort of like shrink the federal government, but not really knowing how that sort of played out in the context of HIV AIDS. And it's just like astounding to me, I guess, that like there was this thing that was happening and that their whole governmental philosophy was basically not, okay, given the information that we have, how should we behave fiscally? But our goal is to spend as little money as possible, regardless of what is happening. And that that's just like a really shitty governmental philosophy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't know how else to say that. Yeah. And he makes it clear in the book, too, that the money was there. They just weren't signing the checks. Like everything was already appropriated and budgeted. They just refused to send the money. And so they like the CDC just had to make do with whatever was in the bank. So that's like the most proximate level. So there was like not giving them the money that was promised. Right. And then beyond that, like at the next higher level up, they were basically sort of favoring the NIH over the CDC because the NIH was already like bigger and more powerful. And just because of the way that the NIH operates and like the training that they had, you know, they're used to operating on like a very slow time scale of research. They're not used to dealing with like unfolding epidemics in real time. And they didn't understand the urgency of what was going on. And they just wanted to like conduct research the way that they were going to conduct research. And the federal government didn't really understand that like giving money to the NIH was a really different thing than giving money to the CDC. And the NIH was counting basically like any research into any kind of immune deficiency, whether it was genetic or infectious as like money for AIDS when like 95% of the money that they were quote unquote spending on AIDS was like not actually being spent on AIDS. Right. Just on like things like pneumonia, the things that people were dying of and not the root cause of what made them yeah. vulnerable to those infections. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Like <laughs> nobody was interested in root causes like on any side of this. And that was part of Schultz's whole thing. But yeah, the Reagan administration, it's pretty damning the way that he couches it in the book because it makes it clear that they were really only interested in their constituents, which I guess, you know, like in the more cynical time that we live, you would say, of course they were. But at the same time, it's like, it's literally your job to protect people. You have the institutional power to do that. And the institutions are available. You had the money. It's like, you just didn't pull the trigger. And it's crazy. Like, why not pull the trigger? Just because those people wouldn't vote for you, they're not your people. Like, it's inhumane in a way that is staggering. Not only would those people not vote for him, but also, like, they literally, like, didn't think of them as humans. Like, 
they were disgusted mm-hmm. by them. Even before the stigma of disease, there is the stigma of sexuality. Yeah. Based on the fact that this book was published in 1987, I'm actually surprised by how well it holds up. Aside from the fact that I think they use the word homosexual a lot, Mm -hmm. and that word has kind of fallen out of favor and isn't really used that much because it's like kind of overly clinical and, um, you know, reduces people to their sexual behavior. Yeah, like aside from that, it doesn't feel out of date in the way that a lot of things that were written or produced even like 10 or 15 years ago can feel super out of date for the way that they treat, you know, like consent or sex or race or things like that. Do you agree? Yeah. I think a part of it is because Schultz was a part of that community and especially the San Francisco community. And I mean, that he was writing about himself in some ways and, and about people that he knew. So the more human you make something in a way you can make it more timeless And I can remember growing up and hearing about bathhouses. And that's kind of the only part that felt really dated to me was when he talked about that and um, the way that people clung to it. But I guess you can understand it once he contextualizes it as part of the male gay identity, you know, in that time and space. Yeah, I totally agree. He does a really good job, I think, of both putting the factual blame where it belongs on the bathhouse owners and the certain parts of the gay community that really resisted um, closing the bathhouses, educating people about what was going on and like talking about the epidemic, Mm -hmm. but also contextualizing where that reaction came from. That basically the sort of like, rampantly pro-sex position of a lot of the gay community at this time. Like, it didn't come out of nowhere, and it isn't something that was inherently gay itself, right? Like, it's it has nothing to do with who you're attracted to. It has to do with society and repression and oppression, right? And that... Um, yeah. I wish I had the quote. Unfortunately, I don't, but... There is a really evocative line where he talks about, you know, like what it's like to grow up in a place where you have to be closeted. You're like constantly repressing like every sexual and and romantic and like human urge that you have. And then you suddenly escape all of that and you're put in a place where where your sexuality is encouraged and celebrated and what it's like to be in a place like that for the first time in your life. To be proud of it and to explore that in that situation, it's not surprising that that some people reacted the way they did with just like going a little bit overboard <laughs> with yeah. the number and frequency of sexual partners. And also that like being in an environment where you can't get married, you're not encouraged to form long-term romantic attachments, you know, that there's like very little societal support and very little societal messages that like romance is a possibility even. It's completely understandable how it happened. 
and to whatever extent that you might be tempted to blame those gay people who made those bad decisions in that moment, you cannot do that without blaming the heterosexist society that put them in that situation as much or more. It's, yeah, it's a dysfunctional reaction to a dehumanizing system. It's a kind of messy, complicated situation trying to think about how that fits in with ideas of the perspective of like sex positivity that a lot of people promote today. I think there's some stuff in the book that could be interpreted as quote unquote sex negative or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. and like pushing people to be monogamous. I think he came down more on that side for sure. You get that sense in the book. Yeah, you definitely get the sense in that book that he's sort of like, why can't gay people be just like straight people, but in relationships with people of the same sex? But I also think like, (laughs) given the context of the early AIDS epidemic, like it's totally understandable that that's a perspective that you kind of have to take. And then again, it's it's kind of like that idea of the pendulum, right? You sort of like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you start out super repressed then you end up like super laissez-faire, no holds barred, just like pro all sex all the time. Then you swing back to sort of like, okay, well, like let's, we can be gay, but let's be super monogamous and responsible. And then sort of like another swing back to the other side that's like, okay, well, like you can have multiple partners as long as you're safe about it. You know, the pendulum is swinging back and forth, but the, magnitude is getting smaller and it's sort of like at some point hopefully the pendulum will stop swinging in a place that makes sense right where everybody can be like more human and just themselves some people want to be monogamous and and have one partner for you know their life or a sequence of monogamous relationships Mm -hmm. or you know like have you know risk managed promiscuity Yeah. And I think, and Schultz kind of talks about this too in the early part of the book with the bathhouses, that I think there's kind of um, a pressure of kind of patriarchal male roles that even in the gay community, part of being a real man is to have as many sexual conquests as possible. And I think that a lot of gay men at that time would have been told that, you know, constantly that they were sissies and they weren't real men. And so that would be a way to kind of, to yourself, define your masculinity. You'd be like, yes, I'm a real man. Like, look how many people I've been with. Like, yes, I'm a desirable man. That would, and that is also like a dysfunctional way that the the institution of the patriarchy in our society, like, controls men. Uh by having, you know, these wide sexual appetites that are destructive to the people around them and to themselves. Oh my God. That's, that is like such an interesting point that I hadn't thought about. The way the patriarchy was set up, right? It's men and women both being told bullshit messages about sexuality, but that like somewhat balance each other out, right? So like women as gatekeepers and men as these like voracious sexual appetites, And that when you remove the sort of like female gatekeeper role from that situation, yeah, it's going to have issues. It's not a good (laughs) recipe. Um, 
I think they reference it in that movie where there's a man and a woman in the bathhouse and she says, what if this place was filled with, you know, penthouse girls and every one of them wanted to take you to one of those rooms? What would you do? And he's like, oh, okay, I see your point. All right. Okay. And that's exactly what it was. You know, these men were and in that example. It's not a specific woman. You know, it doesn't and it's not even necessarily how attractive she is. That's says something to him about himself. It'd be like, oh, I'm I could be with a penthouse girl, you know, like I could then I would be a real man. You know, and to these gay men, it was it was the same kind of thing. Like, oh, everybody wants to have sex with me. And oh, I'm, you know, pleasing everyone. I must be a real man for the first time in my life. I feel like a real man. And I I think that was a huge part of it. Speaking of patriarchy, it's interesting to think about where are the lesbians in this book, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, because of the way that the virus is transmitted, right? Like gay men had a much bigger risk of getting the virus and lesbians had essentially no risk of getting the virus. So it makes sense that they would be sidelined in a book that focuses on the virus. But how much of this book is a reflection of just that biology and how much of it is a reflection of the way that like gay, mostly white men dominated the whole LGBT community at that time. I think it does open with the death of a a lesbian doctor, right? Who was one of the first people to die of AIDS in Europe. Yeah, that's true. There is a real disconnect though, I think between the European epidemic and the American epidemic, right? And sort of, Schultz covers the the first few cases in Europe because that was sort of like the first times that the virus became known to medical science and it was mm-hmm. important for the history. But we get basically no sense of the European gay community and how they reacted to the virus. Yeah, there's probably a bias. I wouldn't doubt it. Another thing that the book I think really highlights to a bigger extent than the movie can is the comparison between the government's response to HIV AIDS and the government's response to Legionnaire's disease. I was surprised that wasn't in the movie. Was it not? I don't, I don't really. I don't think it was. And I was like, man, because that is so staggering in the book when you make that comparison, because it's hard to, I think it's hard for the, the lay person. And like, certainly I count myself as a lay person to know what is the response time of the CDC? What are the capabilities of these government institutions if they're properly motivated and funded to solve problems, you know? And so as I'm going through the book and he he gives this like butcher's bill, you know, throughout the book and I'm like, okay, so there's like 200 infections, dozens of people have died. That's pretty bad, but maybe that's normal, you know, for an outbreak. Maybe it's not. And that in this example is like, so staggering uh, once yeah. once he makes it. It's very powerful. I think the movie does a really good job of showing the butcher's bill, how the death count is rising as you know the epidemic is progressing and how the death count relates to the scientific knowledge and sort of like what we knew about the epidemic as it was going on. And the book does that too, but it also does a really good job of putting the like budget money in perspective and sort of like how the budgets of San Francisco and New York and the federal government 
were sort of like slowly increasing as the epidemic was taking off and becoming more serious. And I totally understand why they didn't put it in the movie because it's like a lot of numbers to keep track of and it's like not as compelling as the rest of the story that they're telling. Mm -hmm. But it is like so frustrating and shocking. You know, in 1982, they were basically being nickeled and dimed over like $5,000 for this and $10,000 for that. And like, oh, we can't even pay the $40,000 that it would take to hire a statistician to analyze this data that you already collected. Right. You know, at the end of the book, six years later, oh, have $100 million. So clearly the money was available. People just like didn't care or like didn't understand what the risk was. And that like if they had been a little bit less shitty and been willing to spend $100,000 in 1982, then maybe they wouldn't have been having to spend $100 million in 1987. It's like the worst version of the trolley problem. You know what I mean? Like the more money you put in, the more people you save. And that's all they had to do. And they had so much money, like so much money. And they they just chose not to. It's so crazy. Yeah. Like this book is is like the clearest illustration of why Reagan economics don't work and are damaging and like have the potential to kill millions of people. And we're doing the same fucking mistake right now. It's yeah. like, I'm I am so filled with rage. Um, so in the Legionnaires outbreak, 29 people died. And the NIH spending was $34,000 per death. By contrast, they had spent $3,000 per AIDS death in 1981 and $8,000 per death in 1982. And he also emphasizes the difference in the way that they were covered by the news media, that basically Legionnaire's disease got daily headlines, basically, and HIV was barely mentioned. Because the early epidemic was primarily affecting gay men, and the news media wasn't comfortable even just like printing the word gay or talking about gay issues that they weren't comfortable reporting on the fact that this epidemic was happening. And there was sort of like the feedback cycle, right? That like, because the news media wasn't reporting on it, people didn't know there was no pressure on the politicians to put money to study it. And then because they didn't have the money to study it appropriately, they couldn't, you know, find out the things that would be written in the news articles Right. And you had this like real breakdown between the media covering what was happening and the government scientists um, and epidemiologists figuring out what was going on. But even when they did mention it, it had like a different name. It wasn't AIDS. It was GRID. It was gay related immune deficiency. Yeah. yeah and I think the story has something powerful to say about the role of names and the importance of names. You know, when it started out, it wasn't AIDS, it was gay cancer. And then it was GRID, the gay related immune deficiency and the sort of like negotiation that had to happen before they came up with um, AIDS and how having a name for the disease that didn't have the word gay in it really 
allowed them to do more than they had been able to do previously. Yeah, that's when it finally broke into the mainstream and started getting talked Mm. about. And also, like, how much the homophobia and the way that it affected the science was, like, so culturally specific. You know, because it's not that there was no homophobia in France, but it was sort of, like, to the French scientists, it was, like, so clear that, like, okay, yeah, it's popped up first in gay men because, you know, they don't have to worry about pregnancy. They have more unprotected sex. Mm -hmm. But, like, how can they think that this disease has a sexual preference? Like, it's like, that's all the Americans can think of. Sex, sex, sex. Like, it has nothing to do with being gay. It has everything to do with, like, semen. Yeah, and I think part of that, too, is wrapped up in the political structure because it was in, uh, like, the mid to early uh, 70s that, like, proclaiming yourself as a Christian when you ran for office became, like, a political strategy. And the more evangelical side of uh, the Protestant Christian community became very activist in politics. And so that became sort of a lobby within the political structure in a way in America that I don't think it was in Europe. You know, like you said, maybe there was homophobia there, but I think it didn't have the same political weight to it that it did here. Yeah, that's a really good point for like, why it would be operating differently in both countries is because of the way that that homophobia interacted with the political system and and the different role that religion and like sexual morality in general played if you're not shaming heterosexual people for their sexual morality and sin it becomes much harder to then stigmatize homosexuals for that same type of behavior if that makes sense right it's not culturally normalized yeah to shame people for their sexual behavior that's totally true that's a good point yeah and i think it makes a difference for like people in the book and, uh, you know, like in the movie, um, he's portrayed by Ian McKellen. Bill Krause is an important bridge between the politics and the gay community. And you needed more people like that. And later on in the book, there's another person who was closeted and was easier for the administration to use against the gay community because he wanted to remain closeted as a politician. And it's just like, it's so crazy how the stigma of the sexuality contributed to the death of so many people. So now that we've, we've talked a little bit about like the societal neglect and homophobia, I want to get back to that, the idea of uncertainty and sort of like murky nature of the truth, reading this book for the first time in 2017, like I could not help comparing sort of like how people dealt with HIV AIDS with how we're dealing with, Trump because oh yeah like <laughs> yes let me explain to you why Trump is AIDS uh, Trump <laughs> is AIDS because <laughs> they're both like completely new things that hadn't been seen before and in situations where like there was a lot of uncertainty and it was not clear what was really going on right so in the case of HIV AIDS you have a disease with 100% mortality and a five-year incubation period. The idea that a disease might have 100% mortality was like unfathomable. And then when you combine that with the fact that the virus took 
so many years to finally like kill the person who had it. It was just like beyond the fathoming of the scientists who were working there at the time. And so as you know, like the death started racking up and suddenly it was like, okay, well, you know, of the people who had been diagnosed in 1980, like 50% were dead, 60% were dead, 75% were dead, like 90% were dead. And it's just like, yeah, like they were not interpreting the data correctly because they like couldn't even fathom what was happening. A certain kind they of They didn't denial. have like the right mental framework, right? And so- yeah, so they were just like in denial of what the data was showing until it was too late. And I feel like the exact same thing happened with Trump. Like he came up and everyone was like, oh, he's so wacky. He's so zany, but like he'll never become the nominee. And then he became the nominee and they were like, well, he'll never get elected. <laughs> and and like the news media covered him in a way that was completely irresponsible um, mm-hmm. because they didn't take him seriously because something like him had never existed before. To a certain extent, like, there is an objective truth, right? right? Like, there is a virus in these people that will kill them. There is, you know, like, Trump and, you know, the interactions that he had with various people, you know, with regard to, like, Trump University or sexually yeah. assaulting these women or his connections with Russia. Like, these things happened. There is a truth. But the truth is not what matters. What matters is the narrative that we tell ourselves and others and how our conflicting interests change the way that we perceive those narratives. In the end, that's what matters for what unfolds and in society. I think the book does a really good job of showing the uncertainty within the gay community itself and sort of like not knowing what to be afraid of, right? Like, should they be more afraid of the virus or they should be more afraid of the stigma and social consequences of talking about the virus. Cause that was like the really tough position that people found themselves in. Right. Is like, do we really want the media to be reporting more on this virus? Because they were like genuinely afraid of being, you know, locked into train cars and driven off to concentration camps you know, and sort of like in retrospect, looking back, we can say like, oh, well, that was super silly. Like that never would have happened. Why were they so afraid of that? That they let this virus blow through the community without fighting harder for themselves. But like in the moment, it's really hard to weigh, you know, like the danger and the probability of these different threats. And I feel <laughs> like that constantly with Trump now, you know, it's like, Everything that the administration tries to do, it's sort of like, well, how likely is this to actually happen? (laughs) You know, are they really going to change the tax code so that now, you know, graduate tuition is going to be taxable? And, you know, are they really going to get rid of Medicare and Obamacare? Like, what are the biggest threats in the moment and what is just a threat and what is actually going to be followed through on. I think I was much more sympathetic to the gay community, like clearly making what was in the long run, the wrong decision as far as like closing bathhouses or keeping quiet about the epidemic versus like trying to get more media coverage. 
dealing with that same sort of like era of uncertainty and murky narratives and like being in denial and saying that like, well, it's not going to be that bad because it can't be that bad. Like I'm going to choose to be optimistic because if it's 100% mortality in a five-year incubation, that means that literally 50% of the people who are currently living in the Castro will be dead in 10 years. Right, um, which is too horrifying. Because which it, like approach. can't ha- I can't I refuse to believe that this will happen. So I'm going to act as if it is not true. Right. And, and that's then you know, in ten years, literally fifty percent of the people who are living in the castor are dead. Yeah. People did a lot of the same stuff with Trump. Like this can't be true because it would be catastrophic. So I'm going to behave as if it is not true. I know that when I read the book. I was texting back and forth with you and I was comparing it to the situations with Trump, not with the election of Trump directly, but of like a general kind of feeling of anti-intellectualism and anti-science, I feel like contributed to his election. I saw like a really strong parallel between the AIDS epidemic and the climate change crisis that we face right now and how that is all being kind of defunded, dismantled, denied by the current administration because the people who hew to the science of that and the thinking of that are the political enemies of the current administration. And so, you know, they will look like facts in the face and say like, well, that's not our constituency and let the world burn, like literally. (laughs) It's like, it's crazy. And it goes back to that intro quote too of sort of like, what do you think? What do you know? What can you prove? And Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times the news media and the popular culture gets really stuck on, well, what can you prove without thinking about sort of what is required (laughs) for something like proof? Whereas as scientists... We're much more used to thinking about sort of like levels of inference and knowing that like some things are really difficult or maybe even essentially impossible to prove with 100% certainty and then basing decisions on sort of like what is in those three categories and also what are the costs and benefits of any potential action. Yeah. There's a really infuriating part of the movie where one of the CDC scientists is talking to a representative from the blood donor lobby, and he's like, I need the names of these blood donors so that we can establish a connection. And he's like, well, I'm not going to give that to you unless you have like all of these, all of this scientific evidence. Basically, I won't give it to you until you have the evidence that you would get from the information that I won't give you is basically what that yeah. conversation boils down to. And it's like, what the exactly. fuck? Like, <laughs> how do you do that job? It's impossible. Yeah. And I really love the scene where they're sort of like interrogating each other and there's like, is it a virus? It's like, no, but can't prove. And, and I love sort of, the way they knew it was a virus was because they had evidence of transmission and all of the blood products get filtered through a filter and the pore size of that filter is small enough that only viruses can get through, like a bacteria, a fungus, Mm -hmm. a protist, anything else would get filtered out. And so that's how they knew it was a virus even before they had isolated the virus. And that's one of those things where it's like, well, we, can we prove it with 100% certainty? No, because we don't have the virus identified, but like we know it. 
because it's the only thing that makes sense given the fact that it is being transmitted through blood products. Mm-hmm. The like most heartbreaking part that's mentioned in the movie but much more emphasized in the book is all of the infants that had HIV in New York um, from transfusions. Oh my God, it's just so frustrating. In the book, the doctor in New York had like figured it out. He's like, I have all these babies. They clearly have HIV. And everyone is like, well, there's no evidence for HIV in babies. So those babies that you have clearly don't have HIV. You know, it's like, again, that sort of like loop where it's like, no, they are the evidence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Where's your studies? Where's your empirical evidence? It's like, it's happening. The house is on fire. I don't need to prove that the house is on fire. Like it's on fire. Let's do something about it. Like so much of your knowledge is based in your um, training as a scientist. And like I come at all of this from a background of literature. And and like I said, when I read the book, I was comparing it to different science fiction novels. And one of my favorite science fiction writers is Isaac Asimov, who was also a scientist, uh, as well as a golden age um, science fiction author. But he has so many great quotes about this kind of stuff. And and I kept thinking when I was reading the book that one of his most famous quotes, he says, the saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gains wisdom. Wow. You know, like I was talking about the anti-intellectual strain, you know, within our society. And, and he said, like back in 1980, he said the strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge, which is like our entire situation these days. I feel like uh, when it comes to anything science-based that rubs against the political grain of whoever is in power. My opinion is as good as your scientific knowledge because it makes yeah. me more comfortable. It's so frustrating that we're making, I think, some very similar mistakes, even like still with regards to HIV and AIDS, but sort of like in the opposite direction, almost like overreacting to the failures that this book and movie makes so clear. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so in the early 80s, the blood banks, they refused to screen for hepatitis B, the hepatitis B test was 80% effective at identifying blood with HIV. And they knew that because the CDC had been doing a study on hepatitis B and they had a bunch of banked blood samples from gay men that they were able to test for hepatitis B and then connect them to the patients and show that they could, you know, use this test to identify 80% of the blood samples that were affected with HIV. And the blood banks refused to do that because of money, basically. (laughs) Fast forward 40 years, we know what the causative agent is for AIDS. Like, we know what HIV is. We've identified it. We have a good test for it. And yet, men who have sex with men still aren't allowed to donate blood, even if they're in a monogamous relationship, even if they've been celibate since their last HIV test. Our policies are still lagging behind our knowledge, but sort of in the opposite direction because they like can't get over the fact that they fucked up so badly. Mm. Like They're punishing all of these people. Yeah, it's a pendulum swing that overcompensates. It's still stigmatizing really is what it is. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, and, like, the, the end of the day, the bottom line is that, like, gay people are the ones who suffer, yeah. um, regardless of where the pendulum is. So you were talking about how they could tell from the blood filtration process that this was a virus. I'm very much a layman in this way. I think I know that a virus is not alive. It's like a pile of genes or something. And then mm-hmm. bacteria are alive. Like, what's the difference here? Like, what are we talking about when somebody gets infected with a virus or like a bacterial infection? Like, Okay, yeah. No, this is a really good question. And actually, the one request that I got was to talk a little bit about the science of AIDS. So this is probably a good time to just do that. You're correct in that viruses are not alive in the sense that we usually think of organisms as being alive. They are much smaller than bacteria and all other cellular-based life, and they don't do a lot of the things like metabolism that we usually think of as as necessary for life. They basically hijack their host cells and use the cellular machinery of whatever they're infecting to do those things for them. Mm-hmm. When you're infected by a bacteria, right, you have the bacteria cells inside your body or maybe on your body on the outside causing some sort of disease Viruses, the way they replicate is actually by injecting their genetic material into the cell and then taking over the cellular machinery and using that to replicate themselves and produce more viruses. Hmm. And then eventually the cell will burst and then those viruses are released into the body and then they can go infect new cells. The interesting thing about viruses is that they're much more flexible in the structure of their genetic material, right? So what we think of as life, we all have DNA as the basis for our genetic material, but that's not true for viruses. So viruses can either be DNA-based or RNA-based. And HIV is actually an RNA-based virus. Okay. Um, And so that's actually what the word retrovirus means that they use um, quite a bit in both the book and the movie. Right, so genetic information flows from DNA. Your genome is made out of DNA, and that's how like all of your genes are stored as DNA. And then they get translated into RNA, and then that RNA is used to make protein. Okay. Um, so that's the central dogma of biology. Retroviruses violate that because um, they store their genome as RNA, and then they inject that RNA into the cell, and the RNA includes a gene for something called reverse transcriptase. Mm -hmm. Their RNA gets translated back into DNA and inserted into your genome. Oh, crazy. So actually, that's the reason why a lot of viruses, including HIV, can't be cured is because the virus actually gets inserted into your genome and becomes a part of you. So even if you kill all of the like actual viruses that are in your body, more of them can pop out of your genome because you're storing them as DNA. You catch the virus as RNA and then it gets stored in your body as DNA and then it can pop out as more RNA viruses um, whenever. That's crazy. That's so terrifying. And so, yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) The first anti-HIV drugs were reverse transcriptase inhibitors. That makes um, sense. And a lot of them still are. Yeah, because every time they were saying retrovirus, I was like, a retrovirus is the answer, right? That's how you stop a virus. But that has nothing to do with it. It's just RNA. 
Okay. Yeah, so that's it's retrovirus is basically an RNA based virus. Gotcha. Um, and that's why Dr. Gallo was given so much credibility because retroviruses were pretty new in the 80s. It took us a while to find them because everyone was still going from the central dogma. Mm. Um, RNA is a much less stable molecule than DNA, so it's harder to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So while we're on the topic of science, I got a question from other Boo Girl asking about how viruses can cause cancers and specifically why Kaposi's sarcoma is one of the first indications of HIV in this early part of the epidemic. Yeah, they say it like 10,000 times in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so basically it's not an HIV-specific thing. Actually, a lot of cancers are caused by viruses. I was reading um, some papers in preparation for this podcast, and they think about 10 to 15% of human cancers are caused by viruses. And they do so in two main ways. Um, So we'll link to this in the show notes. But there's a paper called Why Do Viruses Cause Cancer by Patrick Moore and Yuan Cheng. And it basically says that there's two different ways that viruses can cause cancer. One is directly carcinogenic viruses. So basically the viruses express oncogenes Mm -hmm. that actually directly cause cancer cells to form. And then um, the other way is through indirect carcinogenic viruses, which is basically through chronic infection and inflammation, it just causes mutations in the host cells that then they eventually become cancerous. Um, And so cancer is basically just cells that are growing uncontrollably and don't kill themselves (laughs) when they're supposed to. And so the way that that is all controlled is through genes and gene expression and mutations and genes that lead to changes in gene expression, which I'm realizing now is a is also like a super sciencey word. Gene expression just means like proteins that are made from your genes. Kind of like so, what's switched on and what's switched off. Yeah, what's switched on and what's switched off. And so because viruses are inserting themselves into our genomes and really like interacting with our genomes they cause cancer in a way that things like bacteria and fungus that are basically just like existing as their own cells, you know, and causing damage, but not necessarily like interacting with our genomes in the same way. They're basically just like stealing energy. That makes sense. So it's actually changing the information in your cells, which gives you like a greater chance of it glitching. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That makes sense. It's scary. Oh my God. Yeah, (laughs) it's really terrifying. Every time that you hear in the book or in the movie that somebody has Kaposi's sarcoma. I don't think I said that first word, right? That you're like, oh, that guy's going to die. Like every time. It's just like a death sentence. And so when any character gets one of those little spots, you're like, no. And it's, it's uh, like, it's horrible. In the, the way that like, uh, in most movies, if you ever see someone like delicately coughing up a little bit of blood, like, oh, they have consumption, (laughs) they're going to die. That's sort of like the, the AIDS version of that. Yep. For this story. Yeah. You talked about Gallo's research, I guess, in the retrovirus, kind of like the early stages of that being discovered. And we should talk a little bit about Dr. Gallo, um, because I feel like there are, there are like the three sides of this crisis that, you know, like the political, the social and the scientific. And I feel like Gallo is kind of like the villain of the scientific piece. And he's he's yeah. interesting. Um, but what was his 
research, it was like he proved something about like cancer in cats being related to like a retrovirus. He, so he discovered interleukin two, which allowed people to grow T cells in lab, which is actually pretty cool. Huh. And you could see why they would call him up for AIDS then. Yeah. For a virus where like one of the main symptoms is basically no more T cells. Right. Um, and he identified the first retrovirus in humans, HTLV, the human T cell leukemia virus. And he and some Japanese researchers um, showed that that was the cause of a rare form of leukemia that primarily occurs um, in Japan. And then T cells, just to be clear, is like how your body fights off regular infections for the most part, like your white blood cells. Is that what that is? So I know enough about the immune system to know that I know nothing about the immune system. <laughs> uh, T cells are are part of the adaptive immune system. Okay. The immune system is super complicated, but T cells are important. Is basically about as much as you can say without getting really complicated. Right, because AIDS wipes them all out. It's not that the AIDS will kill you. It's that the other stuff can come in and get you once AIDS has done its work. Yeah. Once you run out of T cells, then the rest of your immune system has to kind of take over and eventually just gets completely exhausted. Right, because like we're talking about like this sarcoma, which, you know, is like this um, skin cancer. But then also in the book, people die of pneumonia, of thrush, of like very easy to kill parasites and other like bizarre things that had doctors scratching their heads. They had to look stuff up because they're like, who dies of this? Like nobody. And that was part of like what was made the early days of it so uncertain because it seemed like people were dying of different things, but they were, what they were dying of was whatever could ravage the body, whatever it could get in there. I feel like I've said this so many times, but that's another thing that sort of like briefly glossed over in the movie, but like really dwelled upon much more in the book is one of the first people to actually realize that something important was going on was a clerical worker in the CDC whose job it was to ship out this like very specific antibiotic that was only needed in very rare cases to treat certain kinds of pneumonia and basically noticed that, you know, she had gone from sending out five per year to like 10 a month or something. Right. And that basically like something very weird was going on. And she sort of alerted the rest of the CDC to this and and got them on board. I feel like at some point also, I should say that I've actually been to the CDC headquarters. Oh, cool. Um, this movie, I don't think was filmed at the CDC, but there's a, the m- movie called Contagion, uh-huh. which is like a SARS, uh, a movie pr- uh, looking at a SARS-like outbreak. There was actually all, all of the scenes that were like filmed at the CDC offices were actually filmed in the CDC visitor center. <laughs> so so it's like it's super beautiful exquisitely decorated like the cdc (laughs) logo on it's like it's all real but that's like not where the scientists work but it was sort of cool because it was like oh i've been there and i've been there and i was there (laughs) it probably doesn't look that good in the actual cdc because they like you know pouring all the money into like the equipment and stuff that's funny yeah, exactly. It's like not that that exquisitely designed. Yeah, yeah. But that vi- the visitor center is very new. It was definitely not built when this movie was filmed. 
That's um, funny. But yeah, okay. So we were talking about Gallo. This is like one of the things that I've found super frustrating to watch as a scientist. Like, not that the way that he's written or portrayed is inaccurate, but the way that he's written and portrayed is like frustratingly accurate. Yeah. <laughs> For a lot of like senior white men who like really see the pursuit of science as like an ego driven activity as opposed to a you know like a truth gathering activity yeah Um, it's about winning it's not about oh my god it's so frustrating and like alan alda does such a great job oh as soon as i saw him i was like i hope that's gallo because that's perfect and it's yeah he's he's on that he's on that tennis court and uh he loses the game and then it's so perfect it's not in the book at all, I don't think, but it's it's such a perfect encapsula- encapsulation of his character and just what he represents. He tells the guy that he's playing tennis with, he says uh, he's clearly like bitter that he lost. And he tells this guy, yeah. he says, never apologize for winning. He says, but you might feel sorry when you don't get that promotion next month. And that is totally yeah. him. <laughs> like That is who he is. And actually, so I don't know the order that this happened in, but Alan Alda actually has a nonprofit center for communicating science that's housed at Stony Brook University. Oh, okay. So I don't know if he was like already interested in science before he did this movie or if the movie maybe like started to get him interested in it. But it's really cool. They they do a lot of like training for academic scientists for how to talk to the public. They have a thing they run each year called the Flame Challenge. Mm-hmm. that started with basically saying like okay scientists explain like what is fire to a lay audience oh cool um, and so every every year they pick a new topic and it's like who can do the best job of explaining a complicated scientific topic to an audience with like very little science training oh, God. and that is so important too like that's really like essential for the way that our culture is constructed for regular people to Right, understand. and you know, like, in order to prevent the kind of things that this book documents, right? Like, yeah. you need a, a scientifically literate public who can demand accountability from the government and from the scientific institutions, from health institutions, and can hopefully be informed. Yeah, and who don't feel like everything that scientists say is arbitrary because the jargon like gets in the way of like, well, you're just saying whatever you want because I can't understand it. And it doesn't agree with like my preconceived notions. Yeah. That's great. That's fantastic. Good for him. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll link that in the show notes for people if they're interested in looking at it. He is nothing like the bastard he portrays. (laughs) Gallo is so bad. (laughs) He's terrible. And for people who didn't read the book or watch the movie, he basically is in a race with, the French scientists who are doing a lot of the same work as him to discover the virus, like to, you know, take isolate a, it. Yeah. To isolate it. And then to take like a picture of it with an electron microscope or to, you know, to map it out, to figure out what's going on with this thing. And he's comes off as kind of um, barking up the wrong tree is, is what I take from it. So he really wanted to prove that his previously discovered leukemia virus was also the cause of HIV or that Mm -hmm. something very closely related to it was the cause of HIV. If that were the case, it would make him more famous. (laughs) Right. Um, It's crazy. And he would be like, 
the the supposed expert on it because he already knew all this about it. And he was having a lot of trouble growing the virus in lab because basically they knew it infected T cells, but it killed all of the T cells so quickly they like couldn't grow it effectively. And the the Pasteur Institute was the first institute to actually successfully do it, but he managed to to basically game the system so that they both got equal credit. Although it came out after the fact that he actually stole their isolate and pretended that he had isolated it as well. I think they say it in the movie, they definitely say it in the book, that his isolate and their isolate came from the same person, which is like impossible. So he Right, because they were working on completely different patients. Exactly. So he clearly took it from their samples. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> man, <laughs> I can't believe he thought he would get away with it either. Like, I mean, again, maybe this is one of those things that like in hindsight, it seems obvious. But to him at the time, he like it didn't occur to him or he just didn't care because he was, you know, trying to go as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. But like viruses, they have really small genomes that mutate really quickly. That's like one of the reasons why when you have HIV, you have to take like multi-drug therapy because if you only take one drug at a time, the virus will just evolve against it like really quickly. Oh, Um, okay. And so because their mutation rate is so fast, that's how you can basically distinguish between viruses from different patients because you have these distinct evolutionary processes going on inside of every person. Wow. And so actually the way that HIV is studied now, it's not like there's a single virus infecting a single patient. You have to sort of study like the population of viruses within a single patient. Oh my God. Crazy. Yeah. And there's like, there's some really cool stuff about how there's like, there's trade-offs for like which mutations are better for surviving within the human body versus which mutations are better for being transmitted. Mm -hmm. And so they can actually do sort of like deep sequencing within known pairs where transmission has occurred. Usually these are like husband-wife pairs Mm -hmm. where um, they can show that like the dominant virus that is in the, the donor person who initially has HIV is not usually the one that ends up getting transmitted to the new patient. Wow. That's crazy. As an infectious disease scientist, it's really like you find yourself... In situations a lot of times where you know it's it's just it's kind of awkward right because you're like i know this is important i know that like people are dying and this is like a really tragic thing but it's also just like so fucking cool yeah no it's great to like you're in a weird part of science where like <laughs> it's so yeah. easy for like neil degrasse tyson to be like filled with hope and wonder because <laughs> he's like looking at stars but you're like yeah, <laughs> looking at infectious diseases and being like, this is so cool. I mean, like, yes, people are dying, and it, but it's cool. So, like, you know, normally I'm sort of like in the U.S. academic circuit and, you know, like we have our problems, but like for the most part, infectious diseases are under control here. But I went to a, a conference in Europe this summer where there were probably like a third of the participants in this conference and workshop were from Africa one of the the speakers for the workshop was giving this this talk about worms and like worm diseases 
And he just kept on talking about, like, how cool it was and how, like, awesome the biology was. And I was just like, for one of the first times, I was like, ooh, like, I feel like you can't give the same talks to people (laughs) who, like, have basically no chance of getting, like, a a serious helminthic infection as you can to, like, people who come from communities where, like, most people probably have some kind of form. Right. It's just like a very different, um, a very different audience that's like much less privileged, and 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 the idea that you can look at diseases and think that they are super cool and interesting is like such a privileged position. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But it's also like kind of um, necessary and beneficial if people are rigorous yeah. in their approach. In one of the recent episodes of Big Strong Yes. Um, when they were talking about Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, and the idea that, like, the science has to love you back or something. Maybe it's not, like, (laughs) the infectious disease doesn't love you back, but, like, to to a certain extent, um, to, like, be a good infectious disease scientist, you do have to have a sense of awe and respect for it, I think. I think, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I would rather, I would much rather a scientist who's in it for the the truth and wonder than a scientist like Gallo who's in it for the renown and the dollars, mm-hmm. you know, of the Nobel Prize and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the awards and stuff can come to people who are into the wonder and who are into the truth and the science of it, of course. But you don't want, like, cynicism in the pursuit of fame in your scientists, I think. That's yeah. really not something we want to cultivate. I think this is also probably a good time to bring up Randy Schultz and a little bit more about his biography. And I I purposely left this towards the end of the podcast because the book is meant to be processed without this knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. But basically that Randy Schultz himself was a gay man in San Francisco and he purposely decided not to take an HIV test or not to get the results of his HIV test until he finished writing the book. He thought that the test result, regardless of what it might be, would interfere with his objectivity as a writer. And I think it's so true, right? You know, like the book is really written with a huge sense of uncertainty hanging over it. And I think his own uncertainty about his HIV status probably helped him do that more effectively. But so he found out after the book was published in 1987 that he was HIV positive um, and he came down with pneumocystis pneumonia in 1992. He was able to attend the Los Angeles screening of the HBO movie um, before he died in 1993. Um, And he was continuing his work as a journalist up until that point. His last book, um, which is called Conduct Unbecoming Gays and Lesbians in the U.S. Military from Vietnam to the Persian Gulf, which looked at discrimination against gays and lesbians in the military, was published basically as he was dying. And so he basically dictated the last chapter of that book from his bed when he was uh, too weak to even write. I know. And it's like there are so many scenes in this book where it's, you know, people on their deathbeds Mm -hmm. doing really brave, heroic acts, big and small, sort of as they're dying 
trying to make the world a better place, either like in their personal relationships with their parents or to try and help end the epidemic. It's just like, it's so poignant that he spent so many years being on one side of that experience as the interviewer talking to people as they were dying. And then years later, he he experienced that same thing on the other side. So the other type of comments that we got from people that I wanted to talk about briefly. There were a lot of people who, when they found out that we were going to be podcasting about this book, um, really recommended the 2012 documentary film, How to Survive a Plague, which basically covers the time period right when this book stops. So sort of like the late 80s to the early 90s, um, and a group called ACT UP, which was a, an advocacy group working to impact the lives of people with AIDS. Um, I wanted to just put that out as a recommendation for our listeners. Um, but I also wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the role of positivity and negativity in narratives. And I think it's really interesting that a lot of people who saw that movie and were very familiar with ACT UP like had not heard of this book at all. And I think had much less familiarity with the period of time that it covers. And I wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that um, the story told in How to Survive a Plague is very much a positive, uplifting story, right? It's like in the face of great odds, these mm. people banded together and managed to do a lot of really amazing powerful stuff to improve the lives of tens of thousands of people. Whereas the story in this book is essentially like a very negative and pessimistic story. We did this. <laughs> we created this epidemic where one did not have to exist. We made this plague so much worse than it had to be. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of an interview that Ta-Nehisi Coates did with Stephen Colbert recently where Colbert asked him if he had hope for America and Coates basically just straight up said like, no, I have very little hope for America. <laughs> and, and sort of like the conversation that resulted around that and like to what extent hope and positivity is like necessary or helpful or, you know, should be a part of a conversation, but maybe shouldn't dominate the conversation. I don't know. Like to me, I feel like, you know, the example of ACT UP and all that they were able to accomplish is really awesome and is an example that we should have to inspire us to action. But I think you need the other side of that coin, the sort of like warning of what happens when you don't, what happens when you neglect, when you ignore, when when you live in denial. And, and maybe even when you just don't have enough power compared to the other people who have right. more control. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I also think that I feel like the role of this book is different because it wasn't a way to solve the problem. It was a chronicle. It was a history. And, and that helps us to safeguard the future. You know what I mean? Like when I read this book, yeah. I tried to apply it to the present. And I, I saw the connections, like I said, between the current administration and the climate crisis and how history is repeating itself in a way that doesn't impact necessarily like 
a particular sexual group. But when you look at big natural disasters, like we've had this year with like um, enormous hurricanes, who are the people who get hit the hardest? It's people like Puerto Rico, where the infrastructure is very poor, where people don't have money, they don't have access to government. And so those people suffer the most, you know, disproportionately versus, you know, people who were very, very close to them in Florida, but have millions and millions of dollars. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like we need, we need the history so that we can safeguard the future. Yeah. All right. And so each time we, we ask this question about the subject of the month. Um, so have you recommended this to other people? Like how has that gone for you when you've done it? I've definitely recommended this to a lot of people Recently, I watched it with my current lab group. We've actually been doing a series of like movie nights where we watch movies that are themed on different infectious diseases um, that I kind of <laughs> just set up mostly because I wanted to watch this movie in Contagion, um, okay. <laughs> um, which is one of my favorite infectious disease movies. There's a clip of Kate Winslet explaining the concept of R-naught. Um, which I use in some of my work. And so like, I'll often play that if I'm like giving a lecture to undergraduates, just cause you know, they like movies and movie stars and they're more likely to listen to her than they are to me. Yeah, it was, it was funny too watching it in that group. Cause we were like, I mean, we weren't talking the whole time, but like occasionally they would say something and like they make some prediction for like how this disease was going to continue to spread. And I would be like, that doesn't take into account the depletion of susceptibles. Like, <laughs> yelling at the tv screen that's the problem with being an expert on whatever the movie subject is yeah no but like it's so good though it's like you know the few places where it gets things like slightly wrong just like underscore how amazing the rest of it is and how and how much research they did the point is how did my lab group react to this movie um i would say they appreciated the information that the movie presented, but didn't love it like as a movie experience itself. Um, mm-hmm. Intellectually, I can kind of understand that because it's it's not a traditional narrative. But from the first time that I saw this movie, I was just like so bought into the drama of the virus and like, you know, Matthew Modine's struggle to like find out what was going on and, and get this done. And I like bought his connection to all of the other side characters that we follow. My lab mates were unable to connect to it in the same way. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I feel like Matthew Modine. Yeah. His talents were well used to be like earnest and compassionate, earnest mm-hmm. and compassionate. And then outraged. It's like, <laughs> he's really good at those three things. And um, yeah, and so he was he was very well cast in that role. Although every time he had a donut in front of him, I was like, "You've never eaten a donut in your life, Matthew Modine." Like, <laughs> he he doesn't he never touches them. They just sit on a plate, and like he holds a fork, and I'm like, "Nobody does that. Stop it." <laughs> yeah, I thought. I mean, all of the acting in the movie, I thought was just really good. I loved all of the fighting between the CDC scientists and between Dr. Gallo and mm-hmm. everyone who he has to interact with. And just like <laughs> how much of a dick he is. Yeah. It's all good. And I really loved all of the actual footage that gets cut into that movie as well. Um yeah. from yeah, like Reagan rallies, but also at the end there's some really moving things from the San Francisco gay community that were filmed of like vigils 
yeah, yeah. I think the movie's great. It was really good. Did you cry during the closing credits? Because I definitely cried yeah. like yeah. in class the first time we were watching it, and like almost every time actually I watch it. It crescendos your emotions into like the tragedy and injustice of it. And then when you have the tears in your eyes, it's like blocko text like three times in a row <laughs> where you're trying to read and you're like, I can't, I can't see anything. Slow down. But oh yeah. yeah about Other like than that. What, what happened to Bill Krauss and, and all mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. You're crying and you can't read like 15 lines of text on the screen. It's like, what does that say? Yeah. I don't even know what's happening. Yeah. But other than that, you know, actually, so this is kind of neither here nor there, but the most surprising thing from reading the book as opposed to watching the movie. So Kiko in the book is Puerto Rican. Oh, yeah. Uh And in the movie, he's clearly East Asian. And like, yeah, like Kiko is a Japanese name, right? Like K-E-I-K-O. But in the book, I think it's short for like Frederico or something. Right, yeah, I think you're right. I think they were basically just like, his name is Kiko, he (laughs) goes by Kiko, we'll just make him Japanese, like, I mean, it's... (laughs) We'll cast B.D. Wong, yeah. uh, Yeah, like, on the one hand, B.D. Wong was great, and, and, like, did a beautiful job, but on the other hand, it was sort of like, it was an opportunity to have a Latino character in a movie, and they sort of, like, it just seemed like a weird change to make. Yeah, it's interesting, too, how, like, You know, one of the themes in the movie is that it took a famous person coming forward who, like, was politically conservative and was actual BFFs with the Reagans, Mm -hmm. um, Rock Hudson, in order to destigmatize the disease enough that they actually spent enough money on it. And that this movie, again, is like harnessing the power of famous people to get people to care about a story that they might otherwise not care about. Yeah, it's kind of that intersection of the biology of the disease and the civilization that we live in, that we've chosen mm-hmm. this democracy where the real way to touch people is through their entertainment, through their culture. Mm-hmm. We care so much more about celebrities than we do like the humanity of anonymous people. Yeah. It sucks. So at other girl on Twitter left us a review on Apple podcast. And we wanted to say thank you with a personalized haiku. Uh, If you would like a haiku, please leave us a rating and review and we will read your thank you on the show as well. And if uh, we don't really know you and you've never interacted with us before, you could also leave us like a handy autobiography or something to give us (laughs) something to start from. That would be rough. Um, I've never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, just like some random the person on the internet. Like, <laughs> that would be tough. Yeah, luckily, if we know other girl, uh, she's great. So we we had some uh, some good stuff to work with. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so here we go. Our makeup artist, always encouraging us. Stay nerdy, my friend. Thank you so much. For your yeah, we, we really, really appreciate it. As um, a fellow podcaster, you know, ratings and reviews are the best way for us to um, get found by other listeners. Um, and so with that, I am Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit hgstorycast.com contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. And don't forget to join us next month for an episode on Octavia Butler's seminal sci-fi novel, Wild Seed. That's going to be my pick uh, next month. Uh, Wild Seed is it's a pretty easy to find novel in used bookstores, uh, libraries, and also the audiobook version is excellent. And it's a really important book in my personal history. And also, I think Octavia Butler, any book that she wrote is worth people reading, whether they're into sci-fi or not. She is a fantastic author who is super relevant to our time and place right now. I hadn't really heard of her before you suggested this book, but she's been in the news so much lately probably one of the most important authors in her time and she was the only black and lesbian author in science fiction and fantasy at that time and uh, blazed a trail for like amazing people who are in that space now yeah i know nk jemison has said that octavia butler was a huge inspiration for her and in august of this year an announcement came out that Ava DuVernay is going to adapt um, another book of hers, Dawn, into a movie. So I'm really excited for that as well. And, and I'm excited that by the time that movie comes out, I'll be much more familiar with her work. So. Yep. So uh, tune in next month for that. And um... Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.